Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Bayou Bottom Whitetails by Ron Spomer. Hi everyone, Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast here with a good story, an adventure story, a little bit of a how-to story from hunting the Bayou Bottoms of Southeast North America. And this was published... Oh, I don't know, some time ago in Successful Hunter magazine. Let's just see what happens. It's been said a whitetail buck from southeast hardwood bottoms is the toughest to get. Not quite. The toughest is from a southeast hardwood bottoms on a commercial hunting operation that sees hunting pressure from the first bow season to the last muzzleloader season. Throw in several years of culling in which clients, managers, hired hands, and family kids picked off hundreds of brush denuding does, and you've created the ultimate whitetail challenge. Alert and flighty aren't strong enough descriptors for these hypersensitive deer. There's one, I whispered over my shoulder to my partner, Jeff McMichael, a Kentucky native carrying a big high-definition video camera. His assignment was to follow me and get footage for a new television series, Whitetail Revolution, for Outdoor Life Network. We had hopes he'd capture an interesting reaction to the impact of the new Winchester XP3 bullet I was shooting. Although, by this time, Winchester engineers knew darn well how effective their new premium bullet was. Of course, we'd need to see a buck in the open before any of that happened. And so far, we hadn't. The first morning of still hunting through a pretty oak bottom, the rising sun illuminating golden beams of fog between dark trunks and limbs, would have been better spent with paint and easel rather than enabled and ammunition. We found tracks, trails, plenty of crunchy acorns underfoot, and even a scrape or two, but no deer. Unless you count the horizontal flashes of brown and the angular flecks of white moving at the far edge of visual range. Such intermittent glimpses usually foreshadow approaching prey, suggest the need to slow, wait, or stalk, but on this December morning, they were merely tantalizing reminders of better hunting days. Where'd it go? I asked Jeff with raised eyebrows and a shrug of my shoulders. We'd oozed toward the deer like cold syrup, and almost that quietly, catching a glimpse of antler at one point, a buck tending a doe, perhaps browsing acorns and biding its time until she was ready, a good candidate for stalking, preoccupied, and the crunch of nuts interfering with its hearing. It wouldn't be expecting trouble from the ground. On commercial hunting grounds, deer have learned that danger explodes from elevated stands. At least that was the theory under which we were operating. Did you see it? 
Jeff shook his head and repositioned the 25-pound albatross camera atop his shoulder. The buckhead walked right out of his viewfinder, too. How are you doing? I asked. I'm good, I'm good. This still hunting takes a lot out of you. Jeff just nodded. We discussed this issue before, each of us respecting the other's intensity and ability to remain focused. But Jeff had the bigger challenge, what with that huge camera, plus a 15-pound tripod in his pack. The Browning Titanium A-bolt that I carried put just six pounds of strain on my shoulder, and the promise of a quick shot at a good buck, well, that kept me alert. The only things that are aspiring Jeff were the chance to capture action footage and a paycheck. Well, beats another day at the office, he said. This is another day at the office, I reminded him. We were hunting near Peckerwood Lake, southeast of Little Rock, Arkansas, on Wingmead Farms. 14,000 acres of corn, beans, pine plantations, and flooded timber managed primarily for ducks, but also whitetails. Several years ago, the Arkansas Game and Fish Department, in conjunction with property owner Frank Lyons, designated Wingmead as an experimental deer management property, meaning those could be heavily culled to bring the population under control, balance the sex ratio, and improve overall deer and forest health. A steadily increasing body size in both does and bucks suggests this strategy is working. You're looking for a 150-class buck or better, Winchester PR representative Kevin Howard had explained during an orientation meeting in the historic old plantation house the evening we'd arrived in camp. Aren't we always? Someone quipped from the cluster of hunters gathered. Yeah, but this time you can expect to find him, right? Kevin then introduced farm manager Rick Shute, who laid out the program, concluding with photos of 150 to 170 class bucks that hunters had taken during the previous two seasons. We've seen three or four bigger than these, and no one's taken any of them yet. And every year someone takes a big buck none of us has ever seen before, Rick said. Well, pump us up. Rick then showed us our stands on an aerial map. Everyone would hunt different quadrants of the property. Jeff and I were given a sizable slice on the eastern edge where a flooded timber gave way to upland oak woods, then corn, beans, and wheat fields. No one will be in any of these stands from here to here, Rex said, pointing to colored dots on the map. We'd been granted special dispensation to still hunt in order to film the new show its premise being active, aggressive, in-your-face tactics as opposed to ambush. Hey, just don't cross the creek here or the road at either end, Rick said. Well, we didn't. Didn't even come close. Still hunting, we were so slow that we didn't see half the ground they allotted us or any of those huge bucks. We did see ducks, lots of ducks. Those are all ducks splashing in there, Jeff whispered as we stared into a seething, sparkling thicket. We'd been hearing quacks, grunts, and splashes all morning, and here was the source. Hundreds of mallards and wood ducks whirling and bobbing and ducking in shallow flooded timber, gleaning acorns, some no bigger than corn kernels. Maybe the deer left to get some peace and quiet, Jeff said. This kind of racket I can appreciate. It's like bugling elk or howling coyote. I can fall asleep to that. We just stood and watched, soaking it all in, the sun warming our backs and drying the oak litter. It was one of those glorious, lazy Indian summer mornings, 
Red-headed and red-bellied woodpeckers squeaked, churred, and hitched through the oaks hunting acorns. Mixed gangs of titmice, chickadees, and nuthatches patrolled the brush and lower branches. Fox and gray squirrels scampered up rotting oak logs and chased their tails, while great flocks of blackbirds whooshed and in and out of the tallest oaks, raining tiny nuts to the forest floor. The air hung still and moist. It was a perfect late-fall morning in a remnant of wild America, and into it walked an antlered white-tailed buck. It came from the water, its splashing hooves blending with the bathing ducks until we noticed the steady cadence. Jeff slowly lifted his camera, I my rifle. Onward came the deer, blinking in and out between trunks, antlers standing high, white, and then it was running away. No pause, no snort, no stamping front legs, walking one second, fleeing in the next. Bounding through the hardwoods, another remnant of wild America, hastily departing. What spooked him, I asked. I wasn't moving, Jeff offered in his defense. Well, neither was I. Breezes in our favor. Unless it swirled. Yeah, they're pretty spooky in here. You think? Yeah, I think. Well, the next two days proved Jeff right. No matter how carefully, how cautiously we still hunted, we couldn't get the drop on a good buck. Certainly, afternoon leaves were noisy, but morning litter was wet and quiet. We stepped slowly, carefully, constantly looking, catching a doe and a fawn here and there, twice finding young bucks, but nothing close to 150 or better. I know there have to be big bucks out here, but it sure doesn't look like it. Unless the rut's over, it shouldn't be. They should be cruising, chasing does, or or at least the young ones should. I don't know, it's as if the woods are empty. Like they all went someplace else, Jeff said. Except my tails are supposed to be homebodies, and wingmead guides had recently seen monster bucks in the area we were hunting. They showed us pictures of splendid bucks taken by trail cameras. One guide on a scouting mission bumped a huge buck from a watery thicket the second afternoon. We moved across the creek, hunted hard, found a few does. Switched to yet another area that afternoon, chasing another good sighting. A buck had been seen slipping from a large pine plantation into a bordering cornfield, so we moved into that neighborhood, and we hit pay dirt. Buck! I mouthed after turning to catch Jeff's attention. Then I pointed cautiously to a vine-covered thicket not twenty yards in front of us. We had been pussyfooting through an old blown-down woods, glassing every stick and stone trying to see a bedded buck before it saw us. And now we had, but barely. His legs were showing under the foliage. Jeff got the camera rolling. I squatted to clear the view. The buck walked out, nervous, yet too young and unsure of himself to bolt. He pranced, stamped, walked away, safe with his small antlers. Well, at least we know we're hunting properly, Jeff noted. Now we just have to find the big one. An hour later, we did. It followed five does out of that pine plantation just before dark. We'd crawled to the edge of a cornfield after spotting the foraging does, hoping that they'd attract masculine attention. And this was it, a mature 4 by 5 that should have grossed about 140 points, if not 150. But it was close. You got enough light? I asked. Barely. Take him quickly if you're going to take him at all. I studied the rifle on the cross sticks, laid the reticle on its shoulders. Less than 100 yards. But was it big enough? 
to satisfy the requirements? You let him walk? Howard asked the night after reviewing Jeff's footage. Well, I wasn't sure he'd make 150. Eh, probably wouldn't have, but it was close enough. The 150 mark is a guide to keep less experienced shooters from taking immature deer. That, that one was certainly old enough, Spomer. You should have shot him. Well, now you tell me. The next morning, we were haunting the field edge, huddled against the steady freezing rain that makes stalking quiet but dangerous. Tree limbs overburdened with ice snapped and plummeted, shattering on the freezing ground. Maybe we should get out of here. You keeping that camera dry? Jeff insisted he was okay. Keep hunting, he said. The deer must have been as uncomfortable in the falling woods as we were, for they kept filing out into the open fields. Within minutes, several dozen fawns slipped from the trees into the beans and corn, and then the buck. He came from the right, moving at a brisk, bold trot, nose down for scent trailing and then up for watching. He appeared to be our big guy of the previous evening, but I lifted my binocular just to make sure. Just as I acquired him in focus, he passed into the standing corn, head down, yellow stalks camouflaging his antlers. Wind-driven rain obscured the lenses. I wiped them clear with a paper towel from my pocket. The buck stepped into the open. It was him. I swapped binocular for rifle, got the scope on him. Fogged scope. I reached for the towel, wiped again, raised the rifle. Too late. He walked into the pines. Gone. Damn, that was him. Were you on him? Yeah, I was filming the whole time, Jeff said. Why didn't you shoot? I wasn't sure it was him. By the time I figured it out, the scope was covered with raindrops, and before I could clear it, eh, I blew it. That evening was the last of the hunt. Most other hunters in camp had taken bucks, some good, one or two really nice, but no monsters. They were still out there, out there for the taking. You make it hard, Howard said before we headed out for the last evening's hunt. It's tough enough to stalk a whitetail under these conditions. It's nigh impossible to get it on a film. What he really wanted to say was, Spormer, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I probably was, but a stubborn one. There's a buck, I whispered over my shoulder. Long way off, did you get him? The deer had zipped across a narrow cut grass trail between pines and standing corn, following the lead of nearly a dozen does that had earlier passed into the forage. I got him, Jeff said. I measured the distance to the crossing point with my Leica rangefinder. 600 yards. A good 400 yards past the point where the big buck had appeared the evening before. Yeah, we need to get closer, unless he wanders down this way. Instead, he wandered back into the trees, suggesting it would be a good time to move, unless he was sauntering through the trees toward us. Decisions, decisions. We decided to wait. More deer hopped from the pines into the corn, including several small bucks and one decent four-by-four, the kind one is tempted to take on the last day of the hunt. Is that the same one that was out a minute ago? I don't think so. Hey, look at that. Look at that one. Funky. A large, dark-bodied buck had emerged from the gloaming woods to stand briefly in that open lane, leering at several comely does in the corn. His antlers weren't particularly wide or tall, but oddly heavy with many points. Wow, it looks like a weird non-typical. Look at the mass on him. Won't score for beans, but he's got to be an old animal with that much mass. That should satisfy Rick. We watched the A-bolt charged and on the sticks as that buck drifted slowly our way. 
following the lead of several does. Another 100 yards and I'll have a reasonable shot, I said after reading 480 yards on the rangefinder. But I'd prefer him a lot closer. And then he stepped back into the trees. The minutes ticked away. If he doesn't come back soon, we're going to run out of light, Jeff needlessly reminded me. What do we have, about 15 minutes? Yeah, about that. I'd baited entering the woods to stalk closer, but what if he was heading our way? Well, what if he wasn't? Oh, we'd better go for it. I shouldered a 300 WSM, Jeff the camera, and we stepped back into the pines, watching ahead, moving as quickly as we dared in the damp needles and the sparse grass. The light was low in the cloistered alleys between the planted rows of evergreens, and we had to slow to avoid the eyes of several does and a fair buck feeding in the bordering corn. Soon we were crawling, then crouching. A doe and a fawn were giving us that old stare-down so familiar to whitetail hunters. A buck noticed them and pranced over to see what all the fuss was about. And that's when our weird buck returned, walking quickly head up deep into the corn. His entrance was enough to distract our curious doe. She waggled her tail and trotted into the bean field taking all eyes with her. Go, I hissed, and we duck-walked forward to the edge of the trees. Can you see him? No. I lifted my binocular and I scanned the corn. A dark spot some 200 yards away raised its head, showing thick antlers against the cloudy sky. That's him. Too many corn stalks in the way, though. No shot. Let's crawl. Thirty yards farther, we edged again to the final line of pines. I tried my shooting sticks, but the corn was too high. I'm going to have to stand to shoot, Jeff. I eased up behind a trunk and I tried to steady the rifle rather unsuccessfully. The buck was chewing corn. I got to get closer. We kneeled in the wet duff and we crawled some more. Inside of 125 yards, I slid up behind another pine and I tried again. The crosshair steadied on a window over the buck's shoulder, just as he snapped to attention, staring into the bean field. Corn leaves blocked a clear shot behind the shoulder, but I figured we'd pressed our luck far enough. I took that shoulder shot, sacrificing a bit of hamburger meat for a sure kill, nearly knocking the old deer to the ground before he recovered, wrung his tail frantically, streaked away, running flat out, never bounding, a death run. We were still searching when night fell. No buck, no blood. I walked a narrow field of corn 300 yards to the far end, row by row, back and forth. He had to have run into the trees, Jeff guessed. Ah, nah, I thought he went straight down that row. Well, it was dark when I finally found him, lying in a ditch of water some 30 yards from where he'd taken the hit, all but one antler submerged. The 180-grain XP-3 bullet had punched high through both shoulders. Look at those weird antlers. They're like a shelf with fingers growing up from it. And feel here, there's a hole underneath it. You can put your fingers in it like a handle. I wonder what caused all of this. I don't know, insects or maggots or maybe when he was in velvet, Jeff guessed. Whatever the cause, those antlers are the strangest I'd seen in more than 35 years of deer hunting, complementing one of the most challenging whitetail hunts I'd ever undertaken. Still hunting a southeast hardwood bottoms buck may indeed be the toughest whitetail challenge. Yeah, I remember that one. Boy, were those deer spooky. And 
Jeff was a heck of a cameraman. What patience. He had to follow me around with that big, heavy camera. Back in those days, cameras were huge, and the tripods to support them were just as huge. But boy, he did the job, and we got a TV show out of it. Uh, but outwitting that buck was the highlight for me, show or no show. It just was a nerve-wracking experience because we had extra pressure. And that's always the case with with cameras on you. You know, you've got to not only make the hunt because they put money into the cameraman and the crews and everything else. So you're kind of expected to deliver. But at the same time, you have to hunt ethically, legally, and all the rest of it. And because of the way they were managing that property, we were supposed to shoot those bigger old age bucks. That was the whole idea. So we really had our work cut out for us. And I, I guess it's hats off to the management program they had there at Wingmead out of that property because despite all the pressure that they had put on that overpopulated bunch of deer on the place to get that population knocked down so they had better forage so they could grow healthier deer. It had all worked, but man, were those deer spooky. Any hint of a person around and they knew it was trouble and they were gone. I've never had worse luck trying to still hunt heavy woods, but it just goes to show perseverance pays. (laughs) So if you ever get the chance to hunt a thicket, go slowly. And stick it out because if you keep working, keep studying, and keep hunting hard, you'll probably be successful, even in the southeast swampy hardwoods. This is Ron Spomer. Thanks for listening on Honest and Shoot Straight. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.